Good morning, Elevation. Glad to be with you in this virtual space once again. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here in Waterloo. Now, not sure if you might have heard about this, maybe something came across your newsfeed, but apparently last week the U.S. had an election. So, yeah, if you're anything like me, you spent too much time tracking this race. But one of the things that really stood out to me as I was watching these incessant news broadcasts was this diagram, this kind of map of the U.S. that they kept showing up. And there were the red states and the blue states and the to-be-determined ones. And I, I think I'm not alone in having this incredible sense that it just paints this picture of just how divided the country is. Uh, some of the language that they even use around battleground states. It, it depicts this, this actual kind of like a war, this conflict, uh, even within a nation. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on over the last, last few days is the fact of how easy it is for a nation to lose its way. And as we're going to be reflecting this morning, it's easy for a church to lose its way as well. Last week, we began a month-long series in the New Testament book of Revelation. And we were introduced to John, who found himself on exile on the island of Patmos, where he received a vision from Jesus, this revelation. In Revelation 1, verse 10 to 11, this is what we read. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, the opening chapters of this final book of the Bible feature a series of letters that Jesus instructed John to send on his behalf to a number of churches in what it would be modern-day Turkey. I was thinking, like, how amazing would it be to get a letter from Jesus? I would, like, frame it, put it up on the wall, show everyone, read it to everyone I had a chance to. And then I had this thought. I was like, oh, I bet someone has claimed to have gotten a letter from Jesus. So I Googled it, and I found this great story that two years ago, uh, this is a, a photo of one of the assistants to Oprah Winfrey. She received a letter in the mail from none other than Jesus Christ. Now, as it turns out, it wasn't the actual Jesus Christ, but it was an 83-year-old woman who some 50 years ago changed her name legally to Jesus Christ. And apparently she's one of five people in the U.S. who have made that decision. And now she sends letters to people and just to kind of bring them joy when they see in the mail that they got a letter from Jesus. But the real question when it comes to the content of Revelation is, would you want to receive a letter from Jesus? I mean, what would that letter say if Jesus were to send one to our church community or to us as individuals? Our reading begins to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now, when you think about an angel, probably all kinds of different things come to mind. Maybe it's uh, Raphael's chubby little cherubs, uh, or maybe it's like the 80s show Highway to Heaven starring Michael Langdon and his face there, or maybe it's uh, the late 90s show Touched by an Angel. All kinds of different things come to mind, and people try to imagine what angels would be like here in our own day. Well, when the Bible is written, the language in the Greek language, the word essentially translates the word messenger. That's what angel means. So that's basically any agent that God sends to execute God's purposes. Now, because people love to argue about details, there are numerous interpretations of what exactly these particular angels are referred to in Revelations 2 and 3. Are they actual celestial beings? I mean, that's the case many a times throughout the book of Revelation. Are they the seven leaders of the churches in that region of Asia? 
Asia? Or are they maybe actual literal messengers, people who had come to visit John while he's in exile, and that Jesus was saying, I want you to give each of these messengers, each of these angels, a letter to take back to their churches? No one really knows. But of more important than who it was that delivered the message are the messages themselves. This morning reading, it came from the last of seven letters written to a particular church in the area known as Laodicea. But before we get there, I want to do a bit of a whirlwind walk through the first six letters. I'm not going to read through all of them or talk about them in detail, but try to pull out like one feature of what Jesus was trying to say to that local church community. So we start with Ephesus. I know your deeds, Jesus writes, your hard work and your perseverance. Now, it would be fantastic if a letter from Jesus to Elevation began that way. And I think that there are some good things that Jesus would have to say about our church community. For the Ephesians, Jesus points out their hard work and perseverance. He also points out their intolerance for wicked people, their commitment to truth, and their endurance of hardships. But just as they're feeling good, Jesus calls them out on the most important thing. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And as much as I would hope that we would all receive the commendation of the first part of this letter, I have to admit that as a church, we would probably hear the second part as well, that we have lost our first love, that we have wandered from that place of our beginning. Many of us have that feeling inside that, that we've lost something along the way. And Jesus would call us, would invite us to recapture that first love. There's a pattern that appears kind of throughout these letters of, of uh, commendation or affirmation, encouragement, followed by uh, something like a rebuke or a challenge or a correction, and then a promise uh, that, that God will be with us in, in this church in a specific way. And so if we wanted to try to imagine what it would be like for us as a community or for us as individuals to receive a message from God, we should expect all those elements as well. Encouragement, challenge, and a reminder of God's promises. But on to the second church, Smyrna. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So Jesus names the struggle that the church is going through. And I think, if, again, if I'm getting a letter from Jesus, it would be so encouraging to know that he was aware of the unique things that we were going through as a church community. But then Jesus does what Jesus does best. He flips the script on their understanding. He said, like, I know about your poverty, but I want to tell you you're actually rich. And so maybe for a community like ours, he would identify the difficulty of this pandemic world and how as a church community, we have to be separated from one another. He would acknowledge that. But then I think in the same breath, he would say, but you're still part of the family. He would remind us of the blessing that's still there. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus writes, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now you could say those words in a threatening way, like, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. But I think Jesus is really just identifying the truth of the reality. They live in a difficult place. He's trying to acknowledge how challenging it can be to live faithfully in a really hostile world. It's like you've put up camp, you've bought a house in the middle of a war zone, and I just want to acknowledge that. He then goes on to give the church honor for remaining faithful in the midst of it all. To the church in Theotira, I know your deeds, your love, and faith. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, I'm not sure Jezebel may have been an actual person in that city, but more than likely Jezebel kind of represents this, uh, a person who leads people away from faithfulness into idolatry and all kinds of different acts of wickedness. And, and that's probably what Jesus was referring to in this case. 
I actually had someone during our church's conversations back in 2018 send me this passage and, and imply that I was actually a Jezebel leading our community astray in unfaithfulness. And it was fairly easy for me at the time to discard that. But I think that we have to be aware that there are actually times when we need to be challenged and we need to be aware of the ways that we may actually be leading one another astray. It's possible even for devoted followers of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to this church, I know your deeds, your love and your faith. It's, it is possible for even devoted followers of Jesus to embrace uh, ideas and behaviors that turn their attention away from God. And that's part of the warning in this letter. The letter to Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. In other words, our reputation doesn't matter if the substance doesn't match. It doesn't matter what someone thinks about us as a church or us as individuals or us as a family. It doesn't really matter if the content isn't there. Uh, and so that's the challenge that's offered here. Eugene Peterson says that Revelation holds the power to wake us up. And in this particular letter to this particular church, those words are actually used. Wake up, wake up. The sixth letter goes to the church in Philadelphia. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I actually sent this verse uh, just this past week to a colleague who lives in Philly, uh, USA, not Middle East. But uh, I sent this letter to him because I wanted him to be reminded that even though they're feeling so overwhelmed and so anxious during this election season and in light of a lot of conflict that's happened in recent months in their city, uh, to be reminded that God sees their faithfulness. To these believers and to us, Jesus offers comfort, encouragement, and hope. Now, all of these churches, they were only a few decades old, and here they are, half thriving, but half flailing about with sin and everything else besides what they had additionally committed themselves to. Eugene Peterson makes this great observation, though. He says, there is no evidence in the annals of ancient Israel or in the pages of the New Testament that churches were ever much better or much worse than they are today. A random selection of seven churches in any century, including our own, would turn up something very much like the seven churches to which St. John was a pastor. Finally, then, we come to the seventh church and the subject of this morning's reading. Laodicea is actually mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, four times, in fact, in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. After this letter has been read to you, the letter known as Colossians, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. So it would seem that the letter sent by John at the command of Jesus to the Laodiceans was not actually the first letter they'd received. They had previously, it seems, received one from Paul. Now, it's hard for us 21st century folks to wrap our heads around this, but this is how people used to communicate. We have communication available at our fingertips, but someone would actually write a physical letter. They would have to hand deliver it to another city. They would read it. They would share it amongst themselves. Maybe they would make a copy of it, and then they would take that letter and send it to the next city over, and the Christians there would read that letter. It's kind of fascinating. So what do we find in this letter to the Laodiceans? I know your deeds, Jesus says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, some scholars believe that this metaphor was taken from the city's water supply, which was lukewarm. It wasn't hot or it wasn't cold. In contrast to the nearby hot springs in Hierapolis and the cold, pure water of Colossae, so some neighboring towns. What I love about this phrase of Jesus is that he makes it clear that there's not only one way that you can be faithful. He said, 
it's fine if you're hot. And you know what? It's fine if you're cold. But we can't be is two things at the same time. That doesn't work. In the next verse, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Or as the message translates it, you make me want to vomit. What was it about the Laodiceans that made Jesus so upset? We read about this trying to do two things at the same time in verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. In place of a life of self-sufficiency, Jesus counsels the Laodiceans and by extension us to purchase from him those things that will lead to the life that is truly life. In verse 19, Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I love this line. And honestly, we could camp out on this verse all day long. There's so much good there. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So all of these challenging comments, all of this, this language about spitting you out of my mouth, it's to try and help them become the people that they were created and called to be. But where I want us to spend the rest of our time here is in Revelation 3, verse 20, the verse from which I took this morning's sermon title. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I can remember like six or seven months ago when this whole lockdown, we were in a real serious lockdown, uh, the experience of hearing someone knock on the door. Like when you're not leaving the house and when people aren't coming to your house, that knock, it was like, shocking in a sense, but it was also exciting at the same time um, because just the possibility that you might see another human being who would come to visit and pay a, a porch visit or something like that. Now, of course, we all began to realize that that knocking was the delivery driver because we discovered or rediscovered online shopping and it was just them knocking on the door and then running away, leaving a package on our doorstep. But there's something about that momentary excitement of someone knocking on the door. Uh, this, the image that you saw, the painting that you saw when I put up that verse from uh, Revelation 3.20 was from a, an artist named William Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. And I'm going to show you a detail of that now. And basically, there are a lot of significant details and symbolism in this painting, but two things I want to point out. The one is the overgrowth. You can kind of see it at the top of the doorway, and in the other picture, you can see it uh, at the bottom as well. And what we see there is that this door has, that Jesus is knocking on has not been opened in a very long time. The second thing, and perhaps the most significant detail, is actually the detail that isn't there, and that is a handle on the door. There is no handle on the outside of this door. There is no way that Jesus could open this door. And so he stands there knocking, waiting for someone to open it from the inside. In other words, Jesus will not force himself into the cozy little cottage home of our hearts, even if we desperately need him to come in, and even if he desperately wants to come in. But Jesus' offer is right there and waiting for us. And if we want to purchase what he has to offer, the gold, the white clothes, the salve for our eyes, we're going to have to let him in. Carlo Coretto makes this great observation about this image of Jesus standing there knocking. Here and only here, is to be found the meaning of prayer. There is one who seeks you, one who stands before you saying, look, I am standing at the door knocking. 
I love the quote because it's a reminder of what prayer is supposed to be. It's actually a response to God. We often think about prayer as I'm going to go to God to talk, but actually Jesus is the one who's already standing at the door knocking and prayer is our answer. It's our walking to the door and opening the door to him. Now, Jesus told this story, this kind of parable of sorts in Luke chapter 12. It was uh, kind of an example that he was trying to use to say that we should be ready and waiting for God uh, to come into our lives. He says in Luke 12, verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Now, to grasp, to understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to kind of bring yourself back to a world where it was acceptable to have people into your home, have strangers come into your home. We don't do that very often anymore. Um, now, I want you to imagine strangers knock on your door and they come in, but instead of you feeling this kind of social pressure, like I have to provide some kind of a meal for them and I've got to tidy things up, they say, I just want you to sit down and I'm going to strap on an apron and I'm going to make a wonderful meal and serve you. Like imagine someone coming to your home and doing that. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, that's what it's going to be like. You see, it's so easy for us to think that we are the ones who have to make our way across the home to Christ's home, that we have to knock on his door, that we have to prepare and bring a dessert to the meal. But the good news is that in Christ, God actually comes to us. God knocks on our doors. N.T. Wright says, the good news comes knocking on doors that we didn't even know we had. I want to think about that for a minute. And what I want to invite you to do is to imagine something with me. I want this image of Christ knocking to stick with us. So maybe it would be helpful for you to close your eyes. If that's like weird for you, just don't do it. Just keep your eyes open, not a big deal. But I want you to imagine, I'm gonna put this slide up on the screen here, again of that painting from William Holman Hunt. I want you to imagine that you're inside that cottage. So you're in the black space of the screen, you're indoors, and maybe you're sitting on a chair kind of by the fire or Maybe you're sitting alone at a little kitchen table, or maybe you're lying on the bed trying to fall asleep, and then you hear a knock at the door. So I want you to imagine that you're sitting in that cottage and then you hear this knock. What if Christ is knocking on the door of the heightened anxiety that you're experiencing during this pandemic season? And what if you stood up, walked across the room and let him in? What if he dressed himself to serve? Had you recline at the table and waited on you? What might happen to your heightened anxiety then? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your loneliness? What if you stood up, walked across the room and let him in? What if he dressed himself to serve and had you recline at the table and waited on you? What might happen to your loneliness then? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your disappointment? What if he stood up, walked across the room and let him in? What if he dressed himself to serve? How do you recline at the table and waited on you? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your anger? What if you stood up, walked across the room and let him in to your anger? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your fear? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your doubts? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your despair? What if you stood up, walked across the room and let him in? What if he dressed himself to serve? Had you reclined at the table and waited on you? What might happen to your despair then? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your lost job, 
or your lost loved one, or your lost hope? What if Christ is knocking on the door of your big dreams or your big decisions? What if you open the door and let Christ into those decisions? What might happen? Here I am, Jesus said. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We have family friends who have a very distinctive knock when they come to visit us. And to be honest, it's not a knock. It's an incessant ringing of the doorbell. They come and the doorbell is just rung like 30 times in like just constantly. As soon as that happens, we know it's these certain friends of ours. And so we go and answer the door. Catherine de Hook Doherty writes, the world knows about God because it only knows about him. It can reject him, ignore him, be indifferent to him, re-crucify him a thousand times a day. But if the world knew him through his own revelation of himself to us in our hearts, then it could not reject him. Once known in this way, he would not be able to be rejected. Once you know Jesus, when you hear that incessant ringing of the bell, you jump up and go to the door with joy. You see, if you just once answer the door and let Christ in, you will begin to recognize the sound of his knock and you begin to jump to your feet whenever you hear that sound. In a moment, we're gonna wrap up our time together. And I hope that you'll stick around for one of our neighbors groups to have some discussion about this morning's theme. If you're not a regular part of our community and don't even know what a neighbors group is, there'll be a link in the comments and it'll give you a chance to dive into a small group for some discussion that I'll be hosting. So I'd invite you to join us there. But I wanna close with a couple of words from Revelation 1, 3 and 3 verse 22, and then we'll close our time in prayer. And I do hope that this image of Christ knocking at the door of our lives will linger with us throughout the day and the week to come. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. God, I am grateful that you come knocking on our door. I am grateful that you do not abandon your church when we go astray. You do not abandon us as individuals when we wander. You come to us, you encourage us, you challenge us, and you promise us your presence and faithfulness. God, I ask that we would pay attention to your knocking. We would pay attention to the invitation to let you in to whatever it is that we are walking through as individuals, as a community. God, I pray that we would be, have our ears attentive to the voice of your spirit as you knock on the doors of our heart. We're grateful that you're here. We welcome you in. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.